Father, we are humbled by the opportunity to come together under your word. It is our prayer together. It is my prayer, Father, that your son Jesus would be seen clearly in the word of God and that we would be moved to a deeper awe and understanding and affection for Christ as our Lord and Savior. Father, if anything goes forth from my lips that is not in keeping with your word, may it fall upon deaf ears. And our prayer together is that Christ will be magnified, that the word will be clearly taught, and that the body of Christ will be built up in faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the text, uh, Philippians 3, 17 to 21, the title of my sermon, Sanctification Continued. Here's the big idea. Sanctification happens as we fix our eyes on the things of the Lord. That sounds pretty simple. Um, Sanctification happens, and I'll define it once more if you weren't here last week. We took some time to define uh, justification, which was two weeks ago, and sanctification. But again, sanctification happens as we fix our eyes on the things of the Lord. I want to start by reading the first verse of the well-known hymn, one of my top 17, Be Thou My Vision. I'm not going to sing it, (laughs) unless you want me to. I still won't. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. question I want to begin with this morning is, Where are you looking today? Are your eyes firmly fixed on Christ and his promises? Is Christ ever before you in your heart and in your mind? Do you find that the eyes of your heart are constantly directed toward his splendor and glory? And again, this is the key to our sanctification. Last week we talked about how beholding the Son of God and the Word of God is at the heart of the believer's sanctification. Where you look will determine not only where you go, right, but what you look like. If you're beholding Christ, then you will look like Christ. If you're beholding the world, then you'll look like the world. So again, for the past two weeks, we've been discussing two very important doctrines, justification and sanctification. As we saw last week, and you can't, I tried to emphasize this, you can't get these out of order, you can't get these wrong, you got to get these right. Justification refers to that definitive declaration of righteousness from God spoken over those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Again, this righteousness is not something that we have earned or deserve, but comes from trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? The one who paid our debt of perfect obedience to the Father and satisfied the wrath of God in our place at the cross, taking upon himself the punishment we deserve. It is his righteousness imputed to or transferred to us. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Are you kidding me? We read of this in Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is written about 700 years before Christ came onto the scene. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Last week, we talked about how sanctification flows out of our justification. Those who are justified, right, declared right before God by trusting in Jesus alone, not their track record, but his, are given the Holy Spirit for transformed living. And as we saw last week, sanctification is an ongoing process whereby the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, in the context of the people of God, makes us more like the Son of God. I thought that'd be memorable. I was hoping you guys would just like sing it out today, but it didn't happen. It's okay. Sanctification is aimed at knowing Christ fully and being fully conformed to his image, his likeness. And although this will not be brought to fruition, this side of heaven, it is our utmost aim here and now, motivated by gratitude for our salvation And the most worthy pursuit being the glory of Christ in all things. So what will enable us to press on toward the perfect? Last week I spent a lot of time talking about the means of our sanctification. And I was going to review all that. I'm not going to do that today now. I just decided like 10 minutes ago because of time. But let me just repeat these points from last week. And if you weren't here last week, it would be worth your time to go back and listen. So the means of our sanctification, again, I argued last week... We always think, you know, justification is grace, sanctification is more our effort. No, justification is grace, sanctification is grace, amen? Because God gives us what we need to persevere in Christ. In the means of our sanctification, we talked about a new relationship, a new vision, and a new standard. And again, I was going to review all this. I don't have time today to do that now, I realize. But what I want to say is this, and this is really important for you nerds out there. If you like Greek, okay, so we talked about how in that section, the present tense dominates. And and so again, when a biblical author uses the present tense, what kind of action does it denote? It's ongoing or continuous. And so we're meant to see that sanctification is ongoing, right? The Spirit of God is continually moving us toward glorification, the completion of God's saving work, and his rescued people. All right, so that was a quick review. As we pursue sanctification, how else does the Lord instruct us in his word to go about it? I mean, the Bible says be sanctified. Paul tells us in Thessalonians, it's God's will. I think the logical follow-up question is again, how? How? I want to point to five things that I see in our text this morning. Five other means that the Lord graciously provides for us for the purpose of sanctification, which is becoming more like Jesus. Amen? And I hope that's our desire, to look more like Christ. Number one, this is from verse 17, look to godly examples and be a godly example. You're like, man, I like the first half, but like the second half, it sounds like i got to do something. Like something's on me. Well, yeah. So not only should we look to godly examples, we should be godly examples. Verse 17, brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, this is a major theme in Philippians, namely the theme of imitation. 
So Paul, let me just review this. Paul, earlier in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, holds up for us Christ as the ultimate example to imitate, right? We should imitate Christ. But then in Philippians 2, 19 to 30, he holds up my boys, right? Who are they? Timothy and Epaphro, Epaphroditus, as examples to follow. And then Paul himself, he holds himself up in Philippians 3.17 and later in chapter 4.9 as an example to follow. Now, this is cool. There's a pattern in Philippians. Paul gives us doctrine or teaching, and then he points us to an example, someone or some ones who are embodying this teaching. So it's like, okay, here's what you do. Everybody say, here's what you do. Here's how you do it. Isn't that sweet? I mean, what grace. Not only, hey, here's what you do, but here's what it looks like in practice. And we got Christ, we have Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we have Paul and those like Paul. So look to godly examples in the church. Who wants to be sanctified? 18 of you, okay. I should change my sermon. Um, If you want to be sanctified, look to godly examples in the church, those who are embodying the word of God. Ask older, wiser, and more mature believers to disciple you in the faith. Man, listen, the church should contain a web of discipleship relationships, amen? This should never be like the exception. Oh, snap, you're being discipled? I've heard about that. Like, no, like, that you're not being discipled? What can we do to make sure that happens, right? It should be the norm. So first, Paul points to his own example when he says, join in imitating me. And this should happen only as long as Paul remains imitation worthy, right? Remember, Paul was seeking to point others to Christ through his example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now next, Paul broadens the scope of, of example to include those who walk according to Paul's example. That is, other believers who are seeking to live like Jesus. Now, Paul knew that he could not be with these believers 24-7, right? Not only was Paul 800 miles away, but he was inaccessible. He was where? He was locked up. He's in prison, right? Chained to stinky guards every four hours. However, the church did have Paul's example in his letters, right, the scriptures, and yet Paul wished to include other believers for the purpose of imitation. Paul says that we should keep our eyes on such people. Now, the verb used here is skapeo, skapeo. It's a present tense imperative, meaning that Paul is here commanding an ongoing or continuous action The verb itself means to watch carefully or to pay close attention to. And there's that weird song from the 80s, but I love, like, I guess it's the chorus, Dave. I always feel like somebody's watching me. Because that's Michael Jackson. Nobody knows that. You guys like, don't ever sing again. I'll never promise that. It's a weird song, but there's that line. I always feel like somebody's watching me. And honestly, guys, that should ring true in the church. Christianity is not a private faith, but a public one. We are to live out the gospel together in community. Amen? 
We should be looking at each other's examples. And those examples should be moving us closer and closer towards Christ. I love what Steve Lawson said. He said, maturity occurs through imitating mature believers. Maturity occurs through imitating mature believers. So again, the question, who is discipling you? Who is discipling you right now? Who are you discipling? Who is teaching you how to read and study the Bible, how to pray? Who is teaching you how to evangelize? Young dads. If you're a young dad, raise your hand. Good. Yeah, I'm still in that category. Who is teaching you how to disciple your children? New wives. Any new wives here? Who is teaching you how to love and respect your husband? Young husbands. Any new husbands? Good. Yeah, what's up, bro? So, hey, who is teaching you how to love your bride the way Christ loves the church? The point is this. We need other believers in order to grow and mature as Christians. I always use this illustration, right? If you're running the Christian race and you look to your right and you look to your left and you're alone, you're not running the right way. As Christians, we should look to the left and look to the right and see other believers running with us. Amen? Man, there's nothing worse than a dull blade. Years ago, I was, uh, you know, when I lived in Washington, I couldn't get away with these illustrations. I feel like in Texas, I can. But again, years ago, I was skinning a buck. And I didn't have a good blade. And it took forever. And it was, it was just messy. It, it didn't work well. And then a few years ago, Haley got me this great skinning knife. It's like butter. Okay? Again, there's nothing worse than a dull blade. It's not useful. What do we have to do with blades constantly? We have to what? You've got to sharpen them so that they're useful. And in the church, sharpening happens How? by brothers and sisters coming together in the Word of God, focusing one another's attention on the Son of God. This is a call to radical church-wide discipleship. Get with fellow believers in to the Word, okay? So uh, it would be awesome. It would be amazing if today, before you left, you found someone and said, hey, listen, I need to be discipled. I've watched you. I've seen you lead your family well. Will you meet with me? Will you gather with me weekly into the word? Help me to follow Jesus better. I need that. I need, I need that encouragement. I need that accountability. That would be amazing. In fact, we're going to lock the doors after some kidding. We're not going to do that. Just a few practice steps. Be more intentional with your example. Invite younger believers to examine your life. Again, ask an older, wiser believer to disciple you and to help you follow Jesus. Do that today. Parents. This must begin in the home with your children. How are you seeking to proclaim truth and embody truth before your children? How are you seeking to proclaim truth and embody truth before your children? Again, how can you grow here? Get into a regular habit of reading God's word with your children. Teach them how to pray, teach them how to read the Bible. And Clarky, where's Clarky? His little hand. <laughs> Every night at bedtime, Clark, what do I say? Follow Daddy as I follow Jesus, and we'll follow Jesus together. Amen.
follow daddy as I follow Jesus and we'll follow Jesus together. Parents do that. Say that. Commit to that. What else? All right, so again, we're talking about means, God's gracious means to help us grow in Christ's likeness. Number one, look to godly examples and be a godly example. Everybody say check. Got it. Clear verse 17. Next, that was my longest point, by the way. Number two, look out for false teachers. Look out for false teachers. Verses 18 and 19, for many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So the second command grounds the first. Why do we need good, godly examples to observe and follow? Why? Because there are a lot of bad examples out there. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, that, this grounds the first. Look to godly examples. Why? Because there's a lot of ungodly examples out there. And therefore, we must be on the lookout. Look away from false teachers and false doctrine. Don't entertain such things. So who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? These most certainly refer to the Judaizers introduced in Philippians 3.2. Paul writes, it's a few weeks back, let me jog your memory. Paul said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Again, a, a principle here is this. We imitate what we behold. Are you beholding truth or lies? Who or what has your attention, friends? I know, and again, I, you know, I may get an email after this. I don't care. Hopefully it's an encouraging one. <laughs> I know many Christians who spend more time listening to secular, non-Christian podcasts than they do reading the Bible. Okay, here's, I know this is some of us. They look to people like Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson for wisdom more than the scriptures. I'm not saying that it's always wrong to listen to people like this. What I'm saying is this. It's wrong to assume that their voice is more authoritative than the Lord's. And that shows when one spends more time with them than the Lord. Man, I'm not going to miss that daily podcast. But you know what? I'll get to the Bible in prayer when it suits me, if I have time. There's something wrong with that picture. Again, where are you looking? Who or what is informing the way you think? If it's not the Bible, something's wrong, friend. What do we learn about these false teachers in our text? Obviously, it's not the first time Paul has warned the Philippians of them. Why repeat something, by the way? We repeat something because why? What's the reason? It's what? It's important, okay, for emphasis. Paul has often told the Philippians about these false teachers. And again, this helps us to see two things, I think. Number one, that what they taught was serious. And number two, they were influential. So what they taught was serious, and they were having influence. Next, Paul's warning is bathed in tears. Why this emotional response? Why is Paul weeping? I believe Paul's weeping is likely related to two things. 
he weeps over the fact that these false teachers are lost. When was the last time you wept over the lost? Does your heart break over those who are living for themselves and not for King Jesus? Who has friends or, or family members or coworkers or classmates that are not following Jesus? And when was the last time you wept over them? Second, he weeps over the content of their teaching and the fact that it's leading others astray. So I would argue that these were indignant tears. These were tears of both sadness and frustration because what they were doing was dangerous. It was leading people astray. Finally, how does Paul describe these false teachers? As enemies of the cross. (laughs) Is that a serious accusation? Enemies of the cross? Why? Because their message obviously de-emphasized the centrality and the sufficiency of the cross. And the word enemy simply denotes opposition. These false teachers were opposed to the message that the cross was enough. Now let me come back to the Judaizers. Who were these cats? Where did they get it wrong? Did they believe in Jesus? Yes. But their good news was not Jesus alone. It was Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus a certain diet. Jesus plus you have to observe special days. They did not teach, nor did they believe, that salvation was found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Somebody say, that's dangerous. Why are people attracted to that? Why are people attracted to that, do you think? This idea that I can somehow contribute to my salvation. Because we are by nature glory stealers, right? We, we, want, we want to be able to boast in ourselves. Yeah, you know, sure, Jesus got me halfway there, but then I pulled myself up by my moral bootstraps and, and I contributed, right? I, I did something. We love that message because it makes us look good, but it's a lie. Amen? It's a lie. We can do nothing to save ourselves, but throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I am a worm, I am a sinner, save me. There are four descriptive clauses found in verse 19 that apply to these false teachers. Their end is destruction. Is that good? <laughs> I mean, that's, no matter how you spin it, that's bad. Because their message is opposed to the gospel, Their end is destruction, the eternal wrath of God. We live in a culture that says, hey, you know what? If if that message makes you happy, if that gives meaning to your life, hey, I'm I'm happy for you. What would Paul say to that? If you're teaching or embracing a message that is not in line with the gospel, your end is destruction. That will not make you happy. Their God is their belly. Paul uses such language to describe their obsession with food laws, right? They foolishly thought that by not eating certain foods, they could somehow earn God's favor. They looked to their diet for right standing rather than the death of Jesus. Number three, and and, and this, let me take a moment here because you read this in any version and it just sounds weird. They glory in their shame. Man, what does that mean? They glory in their shame. It makes more sense in the original Greek to read it this way. 
What they glory in now will be their shame. Oh, snap. That's a warning. Okay, so the word glowy, glory, glowy, the word glory in the Greek, koxomai, means to boast. So what Paul is saying, what they boast in now, it will be to their shame. And what are they boasting in now? They're, they're boasting in what they do. They're, they're boasting in their track records. They're, they're boasting in their righteousness. And on the final day, that will be to their what? To their shame. John Calvin wrote, the glory with which they are now puffed up will be exchanged for, it's a tough word, ignominy, which means public shame. <laughs> I wish Calvin would have just said that, but maybe that was a popular word back then. Lastly, with minds set on earthly things. These false teachers operate by a worldly standard. They thought foolishly that they could advance spiritually through what they did, rather than solely based upon the work of Jesus. Not so the church in Philippi. Recall Paul's words in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. The church is to operate based on a new standard, that of the gospel. We don't look to anyone or anything for confidence but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So friends, if you're looking to anyone or anything other than Christ for a right relationship with God, then your soul is in danger. And we know that Satan works through false teachers to lure people down the road to destruction. Again, what do we learn about these false teachings and false teachers in our passage? Their end is destruction and shame. How does one get there? What's the content? If we were going to distill it down, what is the content of false teaching? It's man-centered rather than Christ-centered. It looks to man and what he can do rather than to Christ and what he's done. So, again... This is something that you can just take home with you. Okay, just store it up. How can we identify a teaching as false? Here's the question you have to ask every time. Does it elevate Christ or does it elevate man? And if it elevates man, run away. Don't look at it. Got it? Here's the practice step. And again, I want to get personal here, okay? And I want you to be honest with yourself, honest with your friends, honest with your spouse. Is there a voice, I'm not saying like you're hearing things, by the way, I'm saying is there a voice today that you're listening to, a teacher, a podcaster, even a preacher, or a social and political commentator who is operating from a non-Christian worldview and who is having influence over your life? And again, listen, I read non-Christian authors, I, I listen to the news, I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm saying because you're exposing yourself to a particular podcaster or commentator, do you see that slowly you're being influenced away from the gospel? And that can be a subtle shift. Maybe, you're, maybe you need to ask your spouse. Maybe you're getting heat over things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And you should be getting heated over other things that have everything to do with God's kingdom. Does that make sense? Is this person or persons causing you to question major Christian doctrines? Be on guard. Keep your eyes on Jesus. All right. What else does the Lord want us to examine as we seek to grow in our sanctification? 
Man, I love this next one. Look to your real citizenship. Oh, this is massive. Number three, look to your real citizenship. Verse 20, what does Paul say? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, right? So Christ is coming back. We're awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven. This concerns the believer's identity. Now, we must remember that because, this is really important, we must remember who we are because of who we belong to. Who we are because of who we belong to. Now, I I would dare say all of us in this room are citizens of these great United States of America, okay? And, And with that citizenship come certain protections, rights, and freedoms. And for that, we are thankful. However, there is a citizenship that is far more significant. If Jesus is your Savior and King, then you are a citizen of heaven. And with that come certain protections and rights and benefits. How often do we forget that heaven is our home? Be honest. How often do we forget that heaven is our home? We get too comfortable in this world, namely with its values and agendas. And this is a tragedy. The church is to be a heavenly outpost. Let me get into some of the historical context here. This will be helpful. Okay, so Philippi was a Roman colony. It was ruled by Roman law, and therefore its citizens were Romans. So in Philippi, if you lived in Philippi, if you were, if this is where you grew up, right? In Philippi, it was appropriate and politically correct to do as the Romans do. We always say, do as the Romans do. Well, listen, if you grew up here, if this was your home, it was actually politically correct to do as the Romans do because you were, in fact, a Roman citizen. And most citizens oriented their lives around their Roman citizenship. It was a source of pride. I'm a Roman citizen. What's up? Oh, snap, you're a Roman citizen? Yeah. What is Paul saying? You guys, Christians, are citizens of the heavenly realm, of the kingdom of God, of the commonwealth of heaven. Live as those who belong to heaven. Be an outpost of heaven in Philippi. May your citizenship, your heavenly citizenship, be apparent in this fallen and depraved world. You guys remember Philippians 1.27, what Paul said? Only behave as citizens worthy of of the gospel of Christ. What citizenship is Paul referring to there? Their what? Their heavenly citizenship. How does this work? Now, let's get into the nitty-gritty. How does this work? When the Holy Spirit drives this reality deep into our hearts, when we truly grasp that we are citizens of heaven, with Christ as our King, ruling over us by His Word, then it will affect how we live now. It's true? Heaven is where God's will is perfectly done and observed. And the church is to live this way on earth, demonstrating to the watching world what it looks like to live with Jesus as king. Hey, friends, can I tell you something? The world, when it looks at the local church, should get a clear picture of what it looks like for God's people to live with Jesus as king. Amen? 
Again, listen, the world will make us feel like we don't belong. But the truth of the matter is we don't belong. We belong to Jesus. Heaven is our home and Christ is our king. His word informs our values and agendas. We should look like strangers. We should look like weirdos to this world, right? I, I mean, seriously. What, you know, when I lived up in Washington, uh, our neighbors down in Portland, they would say, keep Portland weird. And I thought, you guys stole that from Austin. Keep Austin weird. Listen, the church should look weird because of who we love and how we live our lives and our values. Amen? The message we proclaim, how we spend our time and money, it should look strange to the world. When I lived in Washington, I always wore my cowboy boots. And I would find that when I talked about guns or hunting or barbecue, and on occasion, you know, that Lufkin accent would kind of, you know, slip out a little bit. I never had a real strong one, but I'd say certain words, and they'd be like, you're not from here, are you? What was going on in those moments? My East Texas moorings were showing, right? How can we make our heavenly citizenship evident to the world around us? Follow Christ's example. Follow Paul's example. Follow the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Be selfless. Share the gospel. Love the church. Put others first. Amen? Live differently. Live a life informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about our king. This is point number four. This is my favorite. I'm most excited about this point. Look to your sovereign Savior King. Verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is nothing more integral to our ongoing sanctification than our commitment to continually behold the Son of God in the Word of God. Listen, this is very simple. If you wish to be sanctified, look to Jesus. Amen? If you wish to be sanctified, look to Jesus. Again, as we saw earlier, what we behold, we look like, right? We, we imitate what we behold. I have so many examples there, but I don't have time. What is Paul teaching us about Jesus in verses 20 and 21, and why is this important? Number one, Jesus is Savior. We could just stop there. I want you to ponder that with me for a moment. Jesus is Savior. Paul uses the Greek word, it's a fun one, sotir, sotir. It refers to one who rescues from physical or spiritual danger. Do we understand the sheer gravity, the weightiness of this claim that Jesus is Savior? Do we realize what we've been saved from? If we do, it will have an ongoing impact on our sanctification, right? Because there will be nothing else we want more than to love and follow Jesus if we truly know what he has saved us from. I love this quote by Dane Ortland. He writes, When we were running full speed the other direction, Jesus chased us down subdued our rebellion and opened our eyes to see our need of him and his all-sufficiency to meet that need. Listen, he says, we were not drowning. Oftentimes, you know, we use that illustration to describe sin. No, we weren't drowning, friends. In need of being thrown a life preserver, 
we were stone dead at the bottom of the ocean. He pulled us up, breathed new life into us, and set us on our feet. And every breath we now draw is owing to his full and utter deliverance of us in all our helplessness and death. Jesus saves. Amen? Now, there's a lot to say here. It's interesting that Paul brings together the two ideas of Jesus as Savior and Lord. Okay? This is really important. Okay, so Paul highlights in these verses the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's creator. He's the one that has the power and the authority to give us new bodies one day. Amen? I mean, can I do that? Can Dave do that? Can Aaron do that? No, Christ can. He is the creator. By him all things were made. And one day, by his power, he's going to give us new bodies. And he's Lord. But if that's all that we had, creator and Lord, I promise you, we'd be in trouble. You're like, how? Because we need a balanced view of Jesus. As Lord and creator, he is supreme. He is all-powerful. Everything is his, and everything will be made subject to him. This is awesome in the true biblical sense of the word. And yet, if this is all that we had, then this would not result in adoration and love, but terror and despair. Michael Reeves writes, Those who do not know God as a merciful Redeemer and compassionate Father can never have the delight of a truly filial fear. At the very best, they can only tremble at this transcendent awesomeness as creator. At worst, they can only shudder the thought that there is a righteous judge in heaven and hate him in their hearts. Do you know that this was Martin Luther before his conversion? He didn't love God but hated him. Luther wrote, I did not love him. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Why? Because until his conversion, Luther did not understand the gospel. He didn't understand that this sovereign Lord who is creator actually laid his life down for sinners. Amen? The one who flung the planets into existence flung himself on the cross for sinners. Scripture presents us with the Jesus who is both Savior and Lord, who is both awesome and gracious, just and merciful, holy and compassionate. He is the Savior. He is ruling in heaven. And He sustains everything in the universe. And one day, His sovereign rule and power will be brought to bear on all creation. Right? As we saw a few weeks back in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, one day every knee will bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Who likes going to the beach? Yes. Right? Now listen, when I go to the beach, when I come back, it's obvious where I've been. I'm either burned or I'm super tan. Because I have been what? I guess you know, I'm baking. But I've been taking in the rays of the sun, right? The rays of the sun have been beaming down on me. And it's the same for God's people who spend time basking in the presence of God. 
as we encounter the Son of God more and more and more in the Word of God, it will show, it will show. We will radiate His glory more and more in our lives. Does that make sense? It'll be evident. The more time we bask in the presence of the Son of God and the Word of God, it will show. Or think of it this way. Beauty draws us, right? When I saw Haley for the first time, I'm like, oh, girl. If you've seen a work of art or, or maybe a, a picturesque view, you, you want to go deeper. You want to see it more clearly. You're, you're drawn in, right? <clears throat> what Paul is doing for us in our passage, he is giving us a portrait of our beautiful Savior and Lord Jesus Christ to draw us deeper and to bring us in. Here's the practice step. Commit to continually coming to the Scriptures, the Word of God, to behold the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord and Savior. <clears throat> Let me give you an, uh, an assignment, if that's okay. This year, find one gospel. I've done this practice over the last several years. Find a gospel, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, and commit to reading it monthly for a year. Spend time in one of the Gospels for a year to better behold the Son of God in the Word of God. In Christ, we learn that the awesome God of the universe, the one who is all-powerful, not only made us, but lived, died, and rose again to save us. This holy God that we have sinned against has graciously made a way for sinners like us to be saved. Knowing this will inevitably move us to want to follow him more and more. Amen? Does that make sense? I mean, when you're captivated by the Savior King, Jesus Christ, you want nothing more than to grow and to mature and to go deeper. And finally, we learn that the key to our sanctification is to look to the future. The last point, look to your future hope. Verse 21, this Jesus who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This world, our current existence, our suffering, our pain, our hardship is not the end of the story. Praise God. It's not. Ortland writes, our growth in Christ draws strength from a vivid heart sense of his imminent return. We know that when the Lord returns, he will powerfully transform us. Our bodies will be glorified, our sin nature eradicated. We will know Christ fully and be fully conformed to his likeness. I recently came across this illustration in a book. The author presented this scenario. He said, imagine that you're speeding through a school zone. A police officer pulls you over and you get the maximum fine. And financially, you're, just, you're not doing great. I mean, this is going to be heavy. This is going to be a burden. You're worried. How am I going to pay this? What am I going to tell my wife? Well, that very same day, you get a call. You learn that a great aunt <clears throat> has left you a fortune, $50 million. And it's going to be in your account by the end of the week. Are you now worried about the ticket? Say it in Spanish. No, of course not. Why? Because you know the future. You know what's going to happen inevitably, right? I mean, are you going to pay the ticket? Yes, you better. But still, are you worried about the amount? No, because you got $50 million coming to your account. What you know about the future affects how you now live in the present. 
how true that should be for the church. Amen? We know the end of the story, but so often we don't live that way. The more we look to and long for this glorious future that is ours in Christ, the more it will shape us in the present. Let's review. In order to grow and mature as Christians in an ongoing fashion, we must, number one, look to godly examples and be a godly example. Number two, look out for false teachers. Number three, look to your real citizenship. Number four, look to your sovereign Savior King. And number five, look to your future hope. Do you know the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you acknowledged that you're a sinner? That's where it begins, amen? A relationship with God begins by acknowledging that you can do nothing to save yourself. You have to deny yourself. You have to admit that you're a sinner. That's hard. We're prideful by nature. We love to say we got this. We have to get off the throne. We have to acknowledge the true king, the savior king, Jesus Christ. And we have to admit that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but that Christ did it all. He lived the life we could not live, right? We talk about this every week. We owe a debt. What is our debt? We owe God a perfect life. Can any of us say that we've paid that in full? No, but who did? Christ. And because of our sin, which all of us have committed, what do we deserve? Death, punishment. Who took our place on the cross? Jesus. So not only did he pay our debt, he sacrificed his life. And then three days later, he what? He rose again, proving that what he did worked, that a way has been provided for sinners like us to be saved. Amen? So trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. And then radically pursue with his church holiness. And remember that he gives us the grace to do so. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Christian life. But more importantly, we thank you for your son's life, his death and resurrection, because of which we now have the hope of eternal life. We thank you, Father, for sending the Son. We thank you, Jesus, that you and the Father give the Holy Spirit to not only apply salvation to dead, sinful hearts, to not only regenerate us, but to sanctify us in an ongoing manner for your glory and our good. Help us as a church to run this race together, to be godly examples to one another, I pray, Father, for an ongoing web of discipleship relationships here at Kelty's. I pray, Lord, that we would invite people to follow us as we follow Jesus. Father, help us to be on the lookout against false teachers, to be careful what we allow into our hearts and minds. I pray that we think more about our heavenly citizenship and live in such a way that it's obvious to the world that, Jesus, you are king. And, Jesus, I pray that we would behold you daily in the word of God that we would grow in our awe and wonder at who you are, both our Savior and Lord. And lastly, Father, help us to not think so much about our current circumstances, but to remember our future that is guaranteed in you. And I pray that that future hope would affect how we live now in the present for your glory and our joy. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus.